0: morning how's everybody doing all right so um, if you're new to the greenhouse we do a few things differently right we let people talk that aren't on the schedule I guess if we had a schedule and we kind of rotate around the teaching responsibilities um, as far as in the morning the Sunday mornings and today um, I'm up right so excited about that I'm um, excited about God has kind of put on um, my heart in reference to where we've been studying. Um, <clears throat> those of you that know me know that this is a little outside my wheelhouse because I'm a 7th grade teacher. So I'd actually feel more comfortable just talking to these guys right over here, right? Um, our 6th graders and 8th graders. I don't think we, in, if we have a 7th grader in the building, but... Um, but today's message is not really, <clears throat> excuse me, um, revolutionary. Um, it's, it's actually quite simple. Um, but as we've kind of worked through the text, what I've found is um, it isn't so simple, right? Isn't that true in life? The things sometimes that seem the most simple to us are actually sometimes the hardest thing to actually follow through on. Um, so... There's going to be, we're in a story today, we've been in the book of Acts, uh, we're going to continue that study with a story that involves two characters today. Um, and there's actually, I'm going to say that somebody could take this text and maybe preach six or eight sermons of just the text that we're going to cover today. So, but there's, there's just some really basic things as we dig into today's text that reveal to us, and actually as we've shared this morning with Rusty and Bob, of who God actually is of who God actually is and who he promises to be and how he comes through with his promises. So I want to start with you. Um, I'm going to try. I, I'm kind of in that in-between, like, I need glasses, but I don't need glasses stage. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I need glasses, but then if I look at you, I don't need glasses. So um, it's called what? I, yeah, yeah. I've heard that word, but I associate that with... Sorry, but old people, and and, and I'm not ready to say that I'm one just yet, Terry, all right? I know. Thank you, Harry. All right. I want to start with you a story today. One day, a dad was walking with his girls to a playground. Um, They were walking along a waterfront boardwalk uh, where uh, goods vehicles were traveling along the road. And his girls were ahead of him. Of course, they're excited. Um, It's noisy. The excitement's there because they know they're headed where? They know they're headed to an amusement park. And they don't notice a van actually approaching from the right-hand side. In a loud voice, the dad yells out for them to stop, and the girls actually stop. That's good, right? Um. Now, what do they do? They actually instinctively look to their left immediately, right? Dad yells stop. They look to their left. They're looking and they because they know that there has to be a car actually coming because their dad has said what? To stop. Um, they're straining so hard to look to their left that they're actually oblivious to the car that's actually traveling on the right-hand side on the other side of the street coming their direction. And at this point, they actually face a decision that's actually life-threatening, Right? Uh, Do they walk by sight in that I see no car, or do they walk by faith in that my daddy said to stop? They're itching to get somewhere, right? They want to go to this playground. They want to go to this place where there's fun, but thankfully they trust their dad, and that keeps them safe and still. Now, if you have kids or you've ever been in charge of watching kids, you could probably relate to this story, right? Kids are excited to go somewhere, and you're looking out for their safety. If you are a kid, or you can remember back to being a kid, you probably can relate to that, right? You're ready to what? To get to that playground, to get to that exciting destination that you're going. So you could probably relate to the girls in the story. The reason that the girls obey their dad in the story is because they actually trust him. And they know that he loves them, and they know that he's actually looking out for their best interest. They obey, right? Obedience follows genuine trust, which is based in love. We're going to throw some things on the screen here for you today. There's going to be some basic points if you want to jot them down. But obedience follows genuine trust, which is based on love. We see the example of this in the story. The girls obey their father because they know that he loves them. So as children of God, it is crucial to us that we see our Heavenly Father in the same light. As the girls in the story saw their dad, he demonstrate, God demonstrates His love for us and has given us every reason, every reason to trust him and to, um, as our all-know, as an all-knowing, perfect Father. Like, like he's perfect. So therefore we can trust him. This actually is what should be our motivation in obeying God is the fact that we do trust him. And even though the father in the story, in our story, the father can see the big picture. He knows how to direct his girls for them to be safe to get to the playground. God is even better than that because he not only can see the big picture, he actually is the artist of the big picture. He is the one that's creating the actual picture. And we have to trust that he knows what he is doing when it comes to that. Now, unfortunately, kids don't always heed the instruction of their earthly parents, do they? Right? And I mean, I didn't when I was a kid. Nobody's perfect, right? Um, and we don't always obey our heavenly father either. Same deal. So when we don't listen, the disobedience in our lives is not actually. The problem. Um, I would say it's a symptom of the problem because the real problem is actually a lack of trust. We don't really believe that God is who he says he is and that his plan can be trusted in our lives. Now, this is nothing new. Um, Even if we go back to Adam at the very beginning in Genesis, his disobedience is not really the problem. The problem is much deeper. The problem is, is he really doesn't trust God or believe that God's plan is right and is good. Now, we live in a world of uncertainty, and there are questions that we can't answer about why God asks us sometimes to do something, and sometimes God asks us to not do something. For example, Adam probably had questions whenever God told him what he wanted him to do, like why has God forbidden me to eat from one specific tree? What's the big deal? Or maybe Adam thought, you know, what's this, this thing called death? Like how big of a deal could that be? God intended for us to have uncertainty in our lives. I think that. It's not pleasant, is it? Um, because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to live in a relationship of dependence on him and his wisdom. And I think that we were designed for that relationship. We were designed for that relationship with God. And whenever we decide um, to use our own standards, like of what's right and what's wrong or what's good or what's evil, I don't know about you, but I can say whenever I'm living by my own standards, I make a mess of the situation. It, it, it normally never turns out. It might take a little while, but it normally never turns out well. Now, besides Adam, we see another man in the Old Testament who disobeys God because he does not truly trust his father's plan, and that's Jonah. You're probably familiar with the story possibly. Jonah is a Jewish man. He gets a call from God to go to Nineveh, a Gentile city. That Jew and that Gentile thing are going to be big for us today, so I want to make sure that we lay the groundwork for what those are. So this Jewish man is called to go to a Gentile city of Nineveh to preach to them and try to get them to repent of their evil ways. Now, a Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. And you might be familiar with the results of the story. Jonah did not trust that God knew what he was asking him to do. So because he was arrogant and he thought he knew what to do, he fled, got swallowed up by a big fish, repented, and then got spit out onto the shore. He then did go to the city of Nineveh and preached as God had asked him to do, and the people repented of their ways. But even at that point, Jonah still didn't trust God that he knew what he was doing because he was actually angry with God that God showed mercy on the city of Nineveh. Jonah refused to recognize that God had shown him that same mercy. So when we look at obedience, we want to ask some questions. What if obedience to God is uncomfortable? Um, what if God asks us to do something that, we, that doesn't make sense to us? What if he asks us to do something to teach us or to reveal an area of our life that needs redirected? Um, what if God asks us to do something that goes against something that we've been taught our entire lives? This is a situation that Peter finds himself in Acts chapter 10. And that's our text for today. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we'll have the scriptures up on the screen as well. It's up to you on what you do. But we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 10 at a story that you might be familiar with or you might not, um, where Peter, the apostle Peter, finds himself in a situation where God is going to teach him something that goes against something he's been taught his entire life. Like Jonah, Peter is a Jew. Um, He is called by God to preach to Gentiles. Remember, Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh to preach to the Gentiles. An interesting connection here is that Peter is actually in the city of Joppa when our story today happens, and this is actually the same city that Jonah left from when he decided to disobey God and decided to get on a boat and run away. Now, there's a few things we need to understand. One, at this time, there, is, um, there are still no Gentiles that are actually part of the early church. Okay? So everyone is pretty much Jewish. Um, the early church is just, Christianity is just kind of a section of Judaism, um, and it's not really open to other outside groups. Um, up to this point, the Christ-following Jews have only shared the message of salvation through Jesus with other Jews. Um, And I would say there's among the Jews there's kind of an elitist attitude, right? Like they think they're, you know, kind of better. Like that this message of salvation through Christ is only for them. Um, So much that it's even unlawful for a Jew to even go and associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. It's kind of very secluded um, belief here. Of of who Christ is. Now, in our story today in Acts chapter 10, we're going to meet a man named Cornelius. And it's important for us to understand who Cornelius actually was. Cornelius is a Gentile. So we know he's not Jewish. Uh, We know he's actually a Roman. He's part of the Roman army. Okay. And those who are my history people that really like history and like, okay, really? Super. You would do well in my class. Okay. So. Lassa, we haven't talked about Rome yet, but Tristan, you better be ready, girl. And Eden, they were both in my class. So you tell me, Eden, I'm going to call on you here. you ready? Eden, would you want to be part of the Roman army? No. Good answer, Eden. Okay. Cheat him. You're lucky we haven't talked about Rome yet. Okay. The Roman army, if you ever study the Roman army, I teach history. I love it. Michael, you remember some of this from last year? The Roman army are made up of individuals. There's like a litmus test to even be a soldier. You have to be so tall. You have to have a build. Most of you wouldn't make it in here, right? Okay? I wouldn't make it in here. You had to be a war machine. You had to be tough. Um, We're talking about individuals that that, had 50 pounds on their backs and were able to march 28 miles in a day in leather sandals, right? And once they got to there, they built a fortified camp. Right? These, are, these are tough individuals, and this is the kind of guy Cornelius is. He has risen through the ranks of being a Roman soldier, and he actually is to the point where he is in charge of people. He is a centurion. What does that mean? That means where he's stationed, there's about 600 troops, and he actually is in charge of a century. So he's in charge of 100 men, not average men. He's in charge of 100 Roman soldiers. Okay, in present day times, who are my military people? Anybody got a, do I have any military people? Okay, in present day times, he is like the sergeant major. Okay, now how many of us have heard stories about sergeant majors? Okay, man, you guys are super t- participants today. I need to like Jolly Ranchers to throw out or something. So let me read for you a quote I found on the sergeant major in our present day military. The average sergeant major is not characterized by his delicacy. Okay? The job requires a sandpaper grade sternness, pain-inducing vocal projection, and withering facial demeanor that can vaporize the slightest precursor of trouble with a single glance. You understand? We're talking about people that are a lot tougher than we are. Okay? This is the guy we're talking about in this story. So the whole story in itself is miraculous when we see, when we really think about who Cornelius was and the way he's been raised and he's risen through the ranks of the military. This story in itself, a whole sermon could just be preached in itself on the miraculous work that God has done in him. Okay? So let's see how the story plays out in Acts chapter 10. We're going to break it into three sections today. Okay? So... Read with me here. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known of the Italian cohort. That's our group of 600 soldiers, okay? He's a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Right, so Cornelius has a vision. Now the question is, what can we take? What can we learn or take away from this part of the story today? And this part of the story, I believe, there are two things we could look at. Number one, God pursues a relationship with us. Okay, God initiated the contact with Cornelius. Um, even though Cornelius is a good man, right? He's praying, and we see that he's actually giving to the poor he probably has not received Christ as his Savior because this message has not been shared with him because he is what? He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. But we can definitely see here that God is clearly preparing Cornelius' heart and building a genuine faith in him, okay? The second thing is about obedience, especially whenever we don't know the why or the how. Obedience is evidence that we trust God and that we see him as a perfect father and Lord. It shows that we believe his plan is right and that he has our best interests in mind. And, and you know, Cornelius does this, doesn't he? He immediately, what's he do? He immediately acknowledges God as Lord by saying what? What is it, you know? What is it, Lord? And then he obeys without hesitation. Now, I don't know about you, but if this experience happens to me, right, I would probably insist on what? Why? You know, know, I'm I'm a Roman, right? Why are you asking me to go and send for this man Peter? Cornelius doesn't ask why. He just does as God commanded him to do. He's obedient. The other thing um, also, uh, we see that um, he obeys Kind of just said this, but he obeys by sending for Peter right away. He doesn't. He doesn't wait. Um, and I think we need to realize here that Cornelius has a lot to learn. Uh, not not a lot to learn, but a lot to lose. Um, like we said, he's a Roman soldier, and he's being asked to go and bring what a Jewish man um, into his home. And I think if we were to talk to Cornelius before this actually event happened, he probably wouldn't say that this is like on his bucket list or part of his five year plan to have a Jewish man come in, a follower of Jesus Christ, actually come into his home. But he obeys anyway. Okay? Let's carry on with our story. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, These are the men that are going to fetch Peter and bring him back to Cornelius. Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles of the air. And they came out, and and there came a voice to him rise peter kill and eat and peter said by no means lord for i have never eaten anything that is common or unclean and the voice came to him again a second time what god has made clean do not call common this happened 3 times and the thing was taken to heaven and the thing was taken up at once to heaven now while peter was inwardly perplexed to the men and said, I am the one who you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. Now, Peter... Who is Peter? We know Peter is one of the 12 disciples. We know that he's a Jew. We know that in Jewish law, some of the animals are actually clean and some of the animals are actually unclean for eating. And we know that Peter and the other Christ following Jews at the time um, believe in those Old Testament scriptures. Um, They believe they're the Word of God and they're actually still practicing those Old Testament rituals. Um, and law. Um, but, but something's going on here because God is actually revealing like things. Have, some things are changing here, right? Um, things aren't the way they just were before because we now have had Jesus come and die for um, our sins. So what can we take from this part of the story today? Um, the first thing is, is that God has a perfect plan and that his ways are higher than ours. And we see God orchestrating his plan through this, through this story. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither, my way, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The way God looks at things is way different than the way we look at things. First of all, he's in control of things. Second of all, he has the ability to have a bird's eye view. He can look down on things and actually see the big picture of actually what's going on in our lives. Our view is more of a boots on the ground, right? Linear view, I only see what's right in front of me. I can't see the whole big picture. Another thing that we can learn from this section of our story is that God reveals things to us in his own timing, and we must trust that his timing is perfect. God is telling Peter that he now can eat things that have been forbidden for him to eat within the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, this must have felt like a random request by, by God to Peter. Like, seriously, I mean, I go up on the housetop, I'm praying, and you're telling me now what I can and cannot eat. Um, and as anyone would be, I think Peter's actually confu- he's confused by this. Um, And we see his uncertainty because we see, it tells us, he was inwardly perplexed. Um, But God tells him to go down and greet the men. And Peter is obviously secure with his father, with God, and believes in God's plan and believes it's good. And believes that God will reveal, even though God right at first doesn't reveal what this vision is all about to Peter, he will as we get to the end of the story Peter trusts in God and believes that the meaning of the vision and his purposes of the visitors will be made known to him in his timing, in God's timing. I mean, I'm looking at Peter here. The first question I'm asking is, why, right? What? What are you talking about? Another thing we can learn from this section is making prayer a priority is crucial in knowing God what God is asking us to do. What's the one common thing that we see between Cornelius and Peter? We learned that Cornelius was a man who was praying continuously. We see that Peter is actually in the act of praying when the vision actually comes to him. So if, if, if we want God to communicate with us the ways and areas in our lives where we need to be obedient, that comes through actually spending time with him in prayer like we see these two men were doing in, in the story. All right, let's finish up chapter, 20, um, sorry, chapter 23, verse 23. See how our story plays out. The next day he, Peter, rose and went away with them. And some of his brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he walked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with ...or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius... Your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by, been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Right? It's actually not the total end of our story. Our story is going to continue after this. What can we take from this part of the story? Whenever God asks us to do something, he actually goes before us and prepares the way. We see here, and, and we can confidently walk forward expecting that he's actually been there. He, he's actually, he's, he's taken care of it. And, and this, in this part of the story, we actually see um, Cornelius, he, he knows that Peter's going to come. He trusts that God has walked before him and prepared the whole thing because we see him waiting on Peter. This would probably be a couple days later, Right? So he's waiting on Peter. Not only is he waiting, he, he obviously believes that Peter was going to come right away. Right? He wasn't going to think about it a week and then show up because Cornelius is waiting. We can also learn here that we must be willing to obey even if there are risks involved. Okay. Peter enters Cornelius' house knowing that he's actually breaking Jewish law and, could, and this could result in some form of a punishment. And he reminds them of that. You know, Do you know it's unlawful for a Jew to be hanging out with you, you bunch of Gentiles? Um, for Peter, though, it doesn't matter. And this is not the first time that we've actually seen Peter uh, make obedience to God his top priority. Back when we looked at Acts chapter 5, We saw um, Peter was going against the commands of the Jewish leaders. They were telling him that he was not allowed to teach others about Jesus. And Peter responded with what? In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, it said, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So are there risks for Peter? Yes. Does he care? He does not. Why? Because he trusts. He trusts that God knows what he's doing and that the plan is perfect. The plan is perfect. Um, We can also learn from this section of our story that we cannot trust or obey God without practicing genuine humility. Cornelius, we already set the stage for who he is. He is a powerful Roman centurion. He has a position of leadership. He is over. The Jewish people are subjects of the Roman Empire at this time. Yet what does he do? He falls on the floor, right? He falls on the floor, worshiping at Peter's feet. In return, we see Peter show humility by helping him up and telling Cornelius he's just a man just like Cornelius. You know, We don't see Peter whip out his resume, right? Be like, oh yeah, you know me. I was actually one of the 12, right? I've hung out with Jesus. I've eaten with Jesus. You know, um, he and I were buddies and I've been, a am a Jew, right? He could whip out the Jewish resume and be like, I've been taught. I, I, I have extensive background in Judaism. I've walked with Jesus. I've talked with Jesus. And let's remember back in Acts, through the Holy Spirit, he doesn't whip out and say, oh, you know what? I've been, all these miraculous signs and wonders we've been talking about with the books of Acts, the healings, the many people coming to Christ. Peter doesn't whip out his resume and start citing all the things that he's been doing. Um, He says, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. Another thing that we can see in this section of our story is that God continually teaches his children and grows us to be more like him. That's the goal here. Peter is a faithful follower of Christ, and he now realizes that God was telling him in the vision more Way more than just here's what you can eat and here's what you can't eat. God is telling Peter that salvation through Jesus Christ were for all kinds of people. This message is for everyone and not just the Jews. Through the vision, God exposes prejudice in Peter's heart. right? A prejudice that Peter has been taught in his culture for his entire life. And in order to trust and obey God, Peter has to first admit that he's wrong. He also has to humble himself and allow God to clean out an area of his heart that Peter really didn't even know was dirty until now. Now, Brian's going to be back next week and he's going to talk about... um, what God reveals through Peter and Cornelius' obedience today, what we see going on with Peter and Cornelius' obedience is going to be revolutionary in the early church. And without the message of Christ being shared with the Gentiles, right? you and I probably aren't here today. We're not here today. So like the girls in the story that we started with this morning that were excited to go to the park, right? The playground. As children of God, we can't always see the why in what our Heavenly Father is asking. The girls obeyed because they knew they could trust their dad, right? They knew they could trust their dad. In that same manner, our obedience is a direct relationship with our trust that we have in our Father being God, When God does teach us something new or exposes something that he needs to be refined in our lives, like we see in this story with Peter, right? Peter's being taught something here through his obedience. Uh, We don't need to feel stupid. Um, We don't need to feel like failures. We don't see Peter looking like a failure here, do we? No, because he's confident in the plan that God has. Instead, what we need to do is we need to humble ourselves. We need to repent. We need to thank God for being such a good dad and then we need to obey him and we need to continually pray that it is his power that will make us more like him there's a quote from Maya Angelo it's on the screen for you that says do the best you can until you do the best you can until you know better then when you know better do better that's peter here right Peter was doing the best that he could until, right, through his obedience, God reveals something in his life to make him better. Now he's responsible for that. He must obey in what? And actually do better. So today I would ask, is God asking you for obedience in a situation that's maybe uncomfortable? Like Cornelius? like Peter? Is God asking you to do something that doesn't make sense to you? Like our two individuals in our story today as well. Is God asking you to do something to teach you or to reveal an area of your life that needs redirected? Or maybe God is even asking you to go against something that you have been taught your entire life and he's going to switch that up. If God is speaking to us today on obedience and what that looks like as far as being a follower of him, sounds really easy, but all we have to do is trust our dad, right? We have to trust our dad that he knows what's best for us and that he sees the big picture, that he will never put us in harm's way, and that when we rely on him, He will never put us in a situation that it's not good and that He can't handle. Let's pray. Dear God, I I thank you that um, for your ability to take the hands of men and to craft your word 2,000 years ago in a way that makes perfectly clear sense to us today. I also thank you that Your words cannot be accomplished through our efforts. And that you put us in a situation where, just like a child with a parent, and we've all been there, just like a child with a parent, that we have to trust in you and that we have to know that you love us. And that the way that we do that is by spending time with you and getting to know you and praying to you and talking to you and reading your word. And, and I just pray that we would be an obedient people. This is not an easy message to hear because our flesh gets in the way so many times and we want to do things our way. But I pray that we would be characterized by being obedient and that we would realize that we can be obedient to you only whenever we trust you as our Father. In Christ's name, amen.